the experiment for this morning, the lab experiment that we're doing as Christians on the Christian faith is in regards to temperance. It's an old-fashioned word. It's often translated self-control. We all hate self-control, so let's call it temperance. It's not as offensive. Talk about self-control, you're like, oh, crap. I'm talking about what I shouldn't be doing. This giving me lots of guilt sermons, and I'm going to feel terrible about myself by the time I walk out of here. You may, but I'm not going to do that to you. If God does that to you, you can work on that with Him. But I'm not trying to make anybody feel terrible. I think that temperance is a beautiful thing, actually a joyful thing. And so why is it that self-control gets such a bad rap? And how have we kind of distorted that? And why does it feel so hard? And we're supposed to have it as Christians, but then why don't we? Even we've known the Lord forever, why do we struggle and... It's, I think, going to be a very practical thing for us. And so the way I'd like to walk through the conversation is I'd like to try to define it, come up with a definition here together based on how Scripture defines it. Uh, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek virtue. So Aristotle defined it. He's got his own definition. And then I have one that I think, for me, is a practical way to think about it. So we'll define it. And then we're going to talk about the myths of it, as I think it can be misunderstood, and then we'll talk about the goals of it. So this piece of paper here is intended for you to make any notes. If this is us experimenting with our faith, then the Bible is our ingredients list. It's our instruction manual. It's got lots of things that we need. Because um, without the Bible, we kind of like start here. It's just a blank page. I don't know. I'll try stuff, and we'll see what works and what doesn't. We turn to the Lord, like, oh, okay, he's got wisdom in this area. Write down whatever bits of wisdom, pearls of wisdom we find in Scripture, or just occur to you as we're talking, because the Holy Spirit might just whisper in your ear. And then um, at the very end, I'm going to ask you to think about that bottom section there. Um, what's something you feel like you could experiment with on uh, this topic, on this subject, on temperance, on self-control uh, this week? So first, the definition. The Greek word that it comes from is enkratia. So if you want to distance yourself from ever having to think about the dirty words self-control, you can just say enkratia, you know, practicing enkratia. It's a Greek word. No one's offended by that, not English speakers, as uh, most of us are. Um, but kratos means strength, and en means inner, inside. So really, when a Greek word is talking about self-control, it's inner strength. Strength on the inside, strength in your, your heart and your mind, it, it's related to like willpower, sometimes it was called self-mastery. And so the Greeks thought a lot about this. Uh, Aristotle had four cardinal virtues, and one of them was temperance, enkratia, inner strength. Because he felt like, well, if you don't have inner strength, then it doesn't matter how many good virtues or characteristics you want to have in life, if there's no inner discipline, none of them are going to come to pass. So start with the fundamentals. And this was one of his, so he thought it was pretty important. Um, and his philosophy is based, you know, a quarter of it foundationally is based on this. So here's a definition from Aristotle. You don't have to write this down, but just to get a grasp of what the Bible is saying when it says a Greek word versus what I say and what you think we say self-control. Let's get biblically accurate and grounded so that we can actually see it succeed instead of setting up our own false definition and wondering why it doesn't work. Uh, Aristotle defined temperance as one who avoids the extremes of either self-indulgence, right? I do whatever I want, whenever I want, or insensitivity. Like, I don't care about anything. 
neither of those are good. And temperance seeks to find the middle. So he said it's seeking legitimate pleasures at the right time and in the right way. So the temperate person does not despise pleasure. And sometimes in religion and Christianity, you get that sort of version of where like, everything good is bad. Everything that feels good is bad. Well, that's not God. He made stuff and he called it good. And he invented things like pleasure and joy and laughter. So, right, I think God agrees with this temperate definition. Um, the temperate person subordinates his or her appetites to the greater human good, Aristotle said. So they're putting them in their proper place in human life. It is good to appreciate the pleasure of a good meal or a glass of wine or intimacy with a spouse. But the minute those things become extreme or in the wrong places, they become addictions and they become problems and they cause heartache and they cause sin and ripples and bad things. Well, how is the good thing bad? Well, because there was no self-mastery. There was no temperate approach to just, well, where is this thing good? And where is this good thing bad? That's what temperance is about. So. Don't feel like in a sermon on self-control, it's you shouldn't do anything that you like. You shouldn't be happy. You should be serious and grim and resist everything that feels good. There have been branches of Christianity that have said that. That is not what the Bible says. And that's not even what the word means. It just means inner strength. So you're strong enough to choose. Do I want this now? Do I not? Is this the right time or not? Instead of being controlled by those desires. So here's my definition. Um, I'd love for you to consider this one. Christian temperance is the joy of refraining or resisting. The joy of refraining from doing something and the joy of resisting something for God's glory and by his strength. So it doesn't matter if for us we say no to five more cookies or say yes, but if for God we're trying to honor him by how we take care of ourselves and saying no to the extra food, the extra drink, the extra words that come out of our mouth and we perhaps should bite our tongue, um, and then it's for God's glory. It's because he's good and he wants us to live these lives that reflect him. So more of this thing would actually be bad. But also then we're weak-willed people. And self-control and willpower, it only gets us so far. In the words or the, the framework of New Year's resolutions, they get you to about February. That's where willpower gets you. It gets you about a month and you realize, oh, I'm still the same person. I still don't like to go to the gym. It's exhausting and it takes time out of my week. And like all these resolutions, because that's based on human strength. So that's why the end of the definition I'd like us to consider is it's for God's glory and it's by His strength. How can we tap into the strength of God so that our inner strength is Him giving us inner strength versus our own willpower? That's critical difference. <coughs> if you'd like to turn and read, there's a key scripture that I want to read on this definition, or if you'd like to just listen, I'm going to read it aloud, but it's in Peter chapter 3. And um, it doesn't sound like joyful to refrain from something, but if you've ever experienced saying no to something and then feeling good about yourself afterwards, you know what I mean. There can be a joy in saying no. And on the flip side, if you've ever said yes to something in the, mo the moment and then felt bad about it afterwards, you wish that you would have felt joy then, and so you wish the decision had been different in the first place. There can be a joy. It's like, what are we shooting for? What do we want the end result to be? Not just, what do we want in the moment? Temperance is not impulsive. It's thoughtful. So this key scripture for this definition comes from Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter 3.10 says, Whoever desires to love their life 
So I desire all of us to love our lives. Love it. Love the life that God's given you. So whoever wants this, whoever wants to love life and see good days, like see your days go well, see good things, live good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. So it addresses a speech of all sorts. So keep it, restrain it, resist it. Keep your tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, any kind of lies or distorting the truth or anything else. And let him turn away from evil. So that's the restraining. There is actually just going a different way. Not this decision, this decision. And let him do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't turn to these, but a couple of other scriptures that we need to be aware of. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and without walls. You got no resistance. Anything on the outside can get right to you because there's no defense. That's a great one. Another proverb, 1632. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So who's actually stronger? A warrior who can take a city or a man or a woman who can control their own soul. It's harder to control the inside, that inner strength, kratia. That's what the Bible offers us, calls us to. It's what we really want. All of maybe not all. Many of our biggest regrets, we look back and I just wish I didn't choose that way. What if I had inner strength in the moment of decision? That's what we want from God. So I'm going to ask you what you think about this definition. Maybe we can even flesh out a little bit more. But we touched on speech. We touched on action. I think that there are four main areas where you see this playing itself out. So think with me if you've seen these as well. Uh, the four that I saw were speech and consumption, all the things we take in. So we say, what we take in. Uh, our affections, things we love. And then our aggression, the things that we're upset about. Those are all areas that require moderation and how do we want one thing. Uh, restraint in speech. Do we restrain from complaining or are we constant complainers? That's a matter of temperance because you can just choose not to complain about the thing, but maybe you can't actually stop it. It's out of your mouth before you can think to stop that inner strength would be great there. Um, what else with speech? Um, refraining from gossiping. You know this thing about that person, but just don't say it. Inner strength will let you choose if it's the right moment or not. Sometimes it is the right moment to say something. Maybe someone's in trouble and they're not telling anyone. You're like, who do I tell? I'm like, okay. It's just the choice. Temperance doesn't say now or never, just when is right. Um, how about if people practice restraint in social media in their speech? Maybe restraint from oversharing. Social media would probably go away if no one's oversharing. Um, Right? But it's true. Just share about everything. Like, what does temperance say to that? Well, what should I share and when? Or what about the posturing that happens on social media? The best photo of yourself you've ever taken in your life. A picture of your vacation, but not a picture of you like scrubbing the toilet. You know, we, we posture, but is that the right thing to say at the right time? How are we presenting ourselves to the world? What are we communicating? Temperance can have a lot to say. And choices there. Consumption. Um, what if you refrain from excessive eating or eating things that aren't healthy for us? That would be a choice, but in the moment it feels hard to make that choice because we don't have strong enough wills 
God's strength could give us back our freedom of choice in that area. Same thing applies to the drink, uh, drinking of alcohol or any substances, really. What's right? What do I want to choose? Well, I just want, okay. Subordinate your desires, though, to the right time and the right place and good for others, not just good for yourself. These are matters of temperance. Um, consumption also applies to buying and spending, though. Temperance and knowing what to buy and what not to buy, when to spend money, when to save money, choice, right? All right, so that's speech, that's consumption. Another area is affection. Um, temperance would allow us to have the ability to love our families and our friends, but not love them more than God. We actually love God more than them. We're, we're ordering our affections so that instead of loving our families so much that we don't have time for God, or instead of loving so much that we do things, you know, God might not be pleased them, but it's helping them. We prioritize and say, well, God comes first, family. I love you, but I love you second. Stops. I love you, but I love you third, kids. <laughs> and that's proper. And we can teach our families and each other about prioritizing God and our affection for Him. Um, restraint in sexual relationships. Are they appropriate or are they inappropriate? How do we decide? What's appropriate for this person? What's inappropriate for this person? What's appropriate for single people? What's appropriate for dating people? What's appropriate for engaged people? What's appropriate for married people? What's appropriate for widowed people? Like, temperance would say, well, let's think about this, and I don't want my affections to override, my desires to override what I would want to use. But when it comes to love and it comes to affection, that's probably one of the biggest areas where what we want just drives what we do. And so then temperance would say, well, I want to also have a choice in this. I want to have a say in what my body wants. I want to have a say in what I do so that afterwards I can experience joy from whatever I decided, not regret. And that's really hard to do. It's actually not probably physically and humanly possible without God's help, which is why we need his strength. Um, restraint in aggression, um, <coughs> anger. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could take back the angry outbursts? Just take them back like they never had. I wish that. Think of times where I've blown up my kids because something happened, they said something, or I've just been so angry, and that's out. Temperance would let you decide, should I let this out? Is this the time to be angry? And are those really the words I want to choose right now? Nope. <laughs> Probably nine times out of ten, it's going to be a nope. But if it's the time, then you let it out. There's a time to be angry, but there's also right ways to be angry. And temperance gives you some control over that. It's God's control. Um, how about refraining from quarreling? or bickering, arguing about stuff. I don't know about that. No, I don't think so. Someone says something, you're immediately counterpoint. Temperance speaks to that. And the last one, um, what if we had more self-control, more inner strength when it comes to speaking down about others? Whether it's belittling someone or mocking someone who's not present. Like Those words are really harmful. <laughs> I wish we could all take all of those back. They poison the water, and they poison us. And it becomes in a way of speaking. You get together with certain friends that sometimes just end up saying mean things about other people. Um, what if temperance just said, no, I don't choose to speak that way. If someone around me is speaking that way, I choose to redirect the conversation, or stop that conversation, or remove myself from that conversation. Uh, mockery takes the form of humor so often. And sarcasm is like a thinly veiled mockery. <laughs> It's, always, it's not always helpful, it's often really harmful. And temperance lets you decide, can I say this sarcastic thing? Like, is the person I'm with going to receive it well? Is it the right thing to say? Can we joke? 
or am I really just subtly saying what I actually think about this person and calling it humor? And they're going to laugh because they're supposed to, and they're going to walk away upset. Temperance speaks to all that. So, if this def is the definition of temperance, this inner strength, and these areas of life, um, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts that you can add to the definition? This is a little give and take moment. We'll go on to some of the myths of it. But can we improve the definition at all? Or can you think of other examples in these areas where temperance would be important? Do you think the world needs more temperance? you think you need more temperance? Maybe does Christianity, does church need more temperance? Like, how do you think this applies to us? Give me some more thoughts to work with. I think it's thinking of it in the terms of community. Because what's the purpose of temperance? Just mastering it and being just for the sake of us? I see it more as a definition to be connected to, I like that you put it for God's glory, by His strength. Yeah. And that speaks vertically, but I think horizontally we could think of it as this is for the sake of loving others. So maybe that expands it in the other way. Beautiful. Add that to my definition. For the sake of others. Yeah, because if it was just us, we can say or do whatever, but it's how it impacts others, how it binds us or breaks us apart. Thank you. Is there any suggestion? Anything about this definition that we can solidify before we move on? I, I think yeah. that when you see temperance, that also reminds you that Christ is changing people because that's, that self-control is not natural, so that's Christ's control. Mm. It can be encouraging to see it bubbling up. Oh, something's growing in there. That's good. It's growing in the soul. Anything else? This is a Christian life principle. We should all be showing this to greater or lesser extents. If there's none of this in our lives, then something's wrong. You almost kind of don't expect it from the world. Like, the world's value is kind of like, do what's right for you, and too bad if it's not what's right for the next person. Just, you do you. This is not that way. So hopefully the church and us, maybe in this week of experimenting, we could be an example to the world, not of even perfection, but of trying for this, of valuing this. What if this is one of our cardinal virtues? Any other thoughts before we move on? I just feel like it must be somehow connected to like self-denial. Um, I feel like the indulgence of ourselves all the time to say what we want or do what we want, um, especially in the culture now, is like the antithesis of what Jesus taught, which is, you know, take up your cross and follow me. So like do the harder thing. Um, do the thing that's not just indulging your whims and feelings and um, desires. That's nice. um, I want to say the mean thing because I feel like it. Or I'm very angry and I want to let you know that you've upset me. Um, so it's very self-focused to, I guess, I don't know, not have temperance. Yeah, I agree. And that's actually a worldly value. Right? <laughs> to be self-focused, to take care of yourself, to work on yourself, whatever. So we're trying to be countercultural with this one for sure. All right, so let's move on to the next uh, focal point here. Um, maybe I could also make a point before we do, just a, an aside. It's called self-control, not others' control. <laughs> do I need to say more or are we getting we want to impose self-control on other people much more than we'd like to 
have any self-control for ourselves. You shouldn't say that, we say to the person. Self-control, like literally let God work on people and bring God into your soul so that he can work on you. Self-control is for us to focus on submitting to Christ. It's not to be a tool to like ratchet someone into shape and make sure that they behave. When we try to control others, our family, our friends, and the church, it becomes um, an antagonistic relationship. They sort of anticipate the next time you hang out, they're going to tell you what's wrong with you. Or like, I better behave here because this person is analyzing me. It creates judgment in the church. Really, it should just be like, God, show me where I can grow. And then we're all growing because we're connected to the Spirit instead of us berating each other for what we wish other people would be more controlled about. Meanwhile, the log in our eye, we don't even see. So within the church, it's very unhealthy. But outside the church, um, when we want other people to show self-control that don't have God's Spirit, that shouldn't be possible. We're asking them to do something they should not be capable of. If we say, Use God's strength. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, behave this way. Behave the right way. But if they don't believe in God, then why is that the right way? It's all predicated upon people loving God and wanting to be like Him. So for us who are Christians, that's the definition of who we are. We love God and want to be like Him. But for the outer world, if you were to tell someone, stop being so angry, stop drinking so much, stop doing this, stop doing that, if they don't have God, all you're telling them to do is act right. The Bible calls that works. And let's say that you can even convince them and force them to behave properly all the time. Will they get to heaven if they don't believe in God? So it's a weird thing to try to force the world to behave God's ways when they don't have the strength to do it, and you're inadvertently teaching them they don't need any faith in God to be a good person. You just have to have these really nice Christian behaviors. Be a good person. It's almost like you'd rather someone be like terrible and like embracing it. <laughs> And then turn to God, He just changes them, and they're good. Rather than trying to tell people, it doesn't matter whether your soul's right with God. If you just do the right things, you get to heaven, and you do a little bit more right than a little bit more bad. Than you. That's not Jesus. That's not the cross. The cross is we're lost. God saves us, and He loves us. So be careful trying to fix behaviors and people who don't believe in God. Be careful. You could really be doing a lot of damage by giving them false hope in their actions. But... Also, it's not going to work. So guess what happens after a little while of them trying to act godly without God's help? It's exhausting. They fail. They struggle. And they say, this Christianity thing doesn't work. And you have to admit, yeah, it doesn't work apart from God. But you kind of set them up for that. By just saying, behave. Christianity doesn't say behave. Christianity says, submit. Turn to God. Love Him. Love Him so much. He'll work in you. So anyway, just a note. It's self Control, not others' control. That's dangerous. Don't make a mess of things by trying to be others' controlling. Just work on ourselves with the Lord. So the basic myth of self-control that I wanted to address, we've already kind of hinted at, so I'll just really quickly say it. The Bible doesn't offer us self-control. It offers us spirit control. God's spirit offers to control us if we submit to him. God doesn't offer for us to become really strong, powerful people that can do it on our own. We're not offered self-control. And yet, inkratia, the word, does not mean self-control. It means inner strength. And we know our own willpower falters, so we need a different kind of inner strength. So it's spirit strength. We want to be like, instead of self-control, we want to be a, a Holy Spirit-controlled self. 
Because, you know, God's Spirit is going to do some good controlling and curb us from things that will harm us and steer us towards things that are going to give us joy and life because that's what God does. So that's the main difference. That's the myth, is that we can talk about Christian self-control. And that's why I didn't want to talk or, or label this week of experimentation a week of self-control because I don't think the word is the right word. Because I don't feel like I can control myself. When I want what I want, I feel like impelled and compelled to go towards it, to say this thing, to do this thing, to not say or do this thing that I know I should. But when I feel God and I connect and I feel the strength working in me, then it becomes easier to do these things. I want to become spirit-controlled. I want us to want to be spirit-controlled. So there's definitely some great scriptures on this, but if you want to read along with me, the key scripture for this one for this morning is in 2 Peter. So we're in... Peter already. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1 now, and I want to read that for us to recognize God doesn't offer to like make us perfect versions of ourselves. We're still going to be flawed. He offers to dwell in us and then transform us to be our power, to be our strength. Christ is our righteousness. So this is the way 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 8 says it. God's divine, who is calling now? Lord, yes, All right, um, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. His divine power has. What tense is has? Past, present, or future? Has. Past. Has already, you could say. Has already given us. Yes, it's continuing on, but that's a past statement. His divine power has already granted to us all things. So we're looking like, Holy Spirit, give me self-control, give me gentleness. No, you have them. The question is, how are they growing in you? We do all sorts of squashing of the things that God is growing in us. We're all sorts of ignoring of the garden that we should be tending in our soul. Um, this passage describes what He gives us. You're saved, you have His Spirit. This is where it goes from there. His divine power has already granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life and being like God. Through the knowledge of, called up, of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We take part in God. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So desires that are not life-giving. Desires that ruin us. We escape that, take on his desires. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort... So there's work involved here. We're not saving ourselves, but we tend the garden once God has given us the spirits. So there's effort. For this reason, make every effort to add your to supplement your faith with virtue. Okay, so you believe in God. Well, now add character, good character to that. And to your virtue, add knowledge. But we'll learn more about who God is. Read the Bible. Talk to believers. Grow. And to your knowledge, add self-control. And kratia, add inner strength. Again, this is coming from what he's put inside us. And to your inner strength, add steadfastness. Like, stick to it. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't get too tired. And to your steadfastness, add godliness. And to your godliness, add brotherly affection. And to your brotherly affection, add love. Because if all of these qualities are yours and are increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can know a lot of stuff, but we don't just want to know it, because we can know it, but then be unfruitful. There's nothing to show for it. Go to church for your entire life, nothing to show for it. Lots of talk about God helping us, but it hasn't actually been effective. Nothing's changed in my heart or life. This can happen. 
But what we need to do is start at the beginning, tend the roots, tend the stalks, fertilize it. We grow into these things bit by bit. And it starts with faith. It adds to it character, knowledge, inner mastery, self-mastery, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. The order is very important in this list. Uh, don't turn there, but you might remember 2 Timothy as well. Uh, it's 1.7. God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and, and kratia. Temperance. Yeah, yeah. Self-control. Inner strength. Um, you remember Galatians 5 where it says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's these constant battles going on for our desires, and if we lean into ourselves, we're going to find that our strength runs out. But if we lean into God, His strength never runs out. We find ourselves succeeding. And like was said earlier, when you see those little successes, they just feel so good. This one time in this one way, it went better for me. Praise God! That's a mini miracle. Celebrate that. So I was thinking through what does this process look like for us and how do we practically practice um, temperance? I think I would approach it these ways, with these four steps. Uh, first, we recognize it, and then we come to love God more in that area. Then we ask God for his help in that area, and then we take a step with the Spirit. So, recognize, love, ask, step. Uh, there's no such thing as going somewhere that you don't know exists. I'm going on a vacation. Where? I don't know. To a place I've never seen. I don't know how to get there. And I don't know if it's real. No, we, we have destinations. Sometimes we see inner strength in someone else. It's just really appealing. Wow, that person's not tempted by that thing at all. Wow, that person really restrained themselves in how they responded in that situation. You see it. We read Christ. And there are people nailing him to a board about to kill him, and he says, Father, forgive them. Temperance. Inner strength. That was the time to ask for forgiveness, not the time to call down angels and the fire of God. So we can see Christ's example. We have to see it. And this is why it's not always fair to expect uh, Christian values and virtues from the unsaved world. Where have they seen that? Does it seem to you like the American economy is practicing temperance? It seems to you like that's, you know, business school, class 101, how to be self-controlled. Is that what we're learning? Is that what advertising that we see on our phones and on Google and everywhere we go is trying to teach us? No. No, it's not. So then why are we, like, why are we, what's the right word, surprised that it's not existing more often? You have to see it. And I think even for us as Christians, we're not always a great example of it, so... We need to see it. See it in Christ. See it in God. And then we become aware. Oh, I don't have to just respond with this. I'm stressed. Where do we go when we're stressed? We have all these different outlets, things to soothe us and comfort us and make us feel better. And then we see someone who responds to the stress in a different way. It's like, oh, there's another option. Maybe mine's making more of a mess of my stress than I realized. So there has to be recognition. God can bring this to us. We're in a moment, all of a sudden, just our eyes kind of like, oh man, I can't be here. Or I don't need this in my life anymore. Just awareness, or we see an example, scripture, in many ways. But that opening eyes has to be first. 
But I would suggest that usually what happens then is we create like the rules for ourselves. Okay, I'm having a problem with lust with pornography, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to like lock down everything that I do. I'm never going to go to a beach again because I don't want to see any women in bikinis, and I'm not going to talk to females probably. They probably shouldn't make eye contact, and I'm not like God made the human body both male and female. It's a beautiful thing. Are we not allowed to say that God made it beautiful? Do we need to hide? Like, where's our level of inner strength when it comes to attraction and things of lust? Oh, man, okay, well, instead of doing the lockdown, because guess what, if you want to go around the locks that you've put in place on your computer browser or in your life, you just can go around them because you put them there. Like, it's, it's about what you want. So my suggestion would be, think about what God has to say in this area and fall madly in love with what God thinks about this. Fall madly in love with the idea that when a man and a woman are together and commit for life, that there is beauty in that. Commit to falling in love with the idea that the human body is beautiful and so preserve it and protect it. Don't, um, what's the right word, abuse it or um, exploit, thank you, exploit it. Protect that. Be able to look at something and say, that's beautiful, but that's not mine. <laughs> Be able to say, God, what is true about you and your character when it comes to love or beauty or sex? And say, I want that beautiful version. Because you know what? If you fall in love with God's version, then the other versions are going to seem lame in comparison. And instead of just trying to lock down and say, I'm never going to think this thought again, which really just makes you think that thought more and more. What could I be thinking? What does God say about this? How can I love what he loves? Because then it'll make the other things fade in the desire comparison. You elevate your affections for what God wants. It's able to love God more than that. That's the route to change. Not, I'll never do this again. I will impose my self-will and I can schedule and prioritize. Like, <clears throat> if the inside doesn't change, and affections are the way God does that so often. There's a book that Michelle introduced me to called we Have, You Are What You Love. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan from a long time ago, talked about the affections, God stirring our natural affections. Maybe you just look at an area that's a struggle in your life and like, well, what's right about this? What's good about this? What does God think about this? And you just fall in love with God's version. Because it'll be good. It'll lead to love and life and joy. Um, but we won't be able to do it on our own, so that's where the asking comes in. Ask, seek, and knock. God, please do this in me. Not, okay, God, I love your way. I want to try to pursue it. And now here's how I'm going to do it. I've come up with my 10-step plan. No, God, how are you going to do this in me? What's the one, the, the great Christian proverb of the modern day? Don't ask for patience. Because God will give you a lot of things you need to practice patience for. Well, maybe that's how he wants to teach us. Like just ask him to teach us. And even if it means that for us to learn patience, we're going to be in the most stressful situations of our lives or have the most desirable thing right at hand and be like practicing saying no for God's glory and through his strength. Ask him to teach us however he wants, whatever it takes. And then the last thing is actually just take a step. Take a step. Um, sermons are the guiltiest thing on the planet for this. We talk about it, but then we don't do anything with it. I don't like that. I don't like that for myself. I don't like that for us. We're supposed to be practitioners, experimenters. It's an experimental faith. So there has to be a step. You see something, 
pursuing God in it, falling in love with his version of it, asking for help. Well, then he's going to say along the way, try this, do this, experiment. You've got to take a step. You have to take a step. Started reading that book. It's been on my to-do list. It's been in our book pile for a while. Atomic Habits. And even just through the first couple of chapters, talking about like making a 1% improvement in all areas. Or like daily 1% improvement. It's just a good mindset to have. That is what keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is sort of comparable to. Can we take a step? One step? What's the next step in your area of temperance with the Holy Spirit? It's not where's the finish line. That's almost irrelevant because we're going to die in some process of sanctification. We're not going to be perfected before heaven. So we're just looking to continue to walk with the Lord in all of these areas. So, okay, before we go on to the goals, let's stop. Let, let me ask you what you're thinking. This is the, the comparison. Self-control versus spirit control. Do these steps help us exert God's control and ask for it? Can we broaden that definition? Any thoughts coming to mind before we go to the next step? <coughs> Any questions we can dig into on this? I know there's a lot here, but it's a lot of good stuff we can think about together. No? Alright, that's fine, that's fine. Let's just keep continuing through the last section for today before we then break out into our small lab partner groups again and, and continue with the experiment is I'd like to like paint the picture of where temperance leads us. What are the goals of temperance? If we walk this road with the Lord, where will it take us? And uh, the key scripture for this one is 1 Corinthians 9. You turn there or just listen. I'd like to read it for us. Uh, this is Paul talking to a church. So I'm talking to a church, a people of God, a gathering of believers. This applies to us. Um, but in this one, <clears throat> he's talking about himself and how he approaches temperance. And so we're not Paul, we live in a different time, but thinking, be thinking as I read it about how this might apply to you. I'll be thinking about how it might apply to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. 9, 24. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race, such as a literal running race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So that's, that's my basic question. What's the prize? What are you going to get at the end of temperance? Only one receives the prize in the race. So run that you may obtain. Again, self-control, not others' control. Run that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises in kratia, inner strength, in all things, temperance, in all things. And they do it to receive you know, this perishable wreath, a thing that's going to fall apart. But we're running to receive an imperishable prize, eternal life, lasting God's glory, permanence, eternity, and right? It's a different thing. So Paul says for himself, so I don't run aimlessly. Like, I'm not over here, I'm not scattered, I'm not, I'm not doing anything and everything. He says, I do not box, I do not fight as one just beating the air. I'm not just like scattered and haphazard and aimless. Paul says, instead, I discipline my body, my physical bodies, and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Oh, like that's too much. 
of us. And that's too much of preaching. And that's too much of Christianity. That after preaching to all the others, we ourselves are disqualified. Every time there's a major failing of some great religious figure, a writer, a preacher, a speaker, or whatever, it always feels like, man, they preached all this good stuff, but in the end, they then it makes you feel like, well, can I trust anything they said? You know, go through this whole thing. Did they preach truth? So it's still good truth, but we can't use them as a source anymore. But, but we're all the same. Let, let's not be like that. Where we spend our whole lives talking about this theoretical Christian ideal. But then we ourselves don't receive the prize for it. Better to say nothing, perhaps, and spend our lives soaking in to the soul with the Holy Spirit. And let that bear its own fruit than being so outwardly focused about others that we ourselves are disqualified from the race. So the four goals that I, I see are, the first one is joy. Um, temperance creates joy for so many different reasons. And again, if I say self-control, the first thing you think is not joy, but it could be. Maybe I can be persuasive enough to make you think it should be. Um, if you practice temperance, you experience less guilt. Guilt's the opposite of joy. You feel guilty less of the time because at the moment of decision, God gave you strength to choose a better thing. So there's just less guilt in a life of temperance. I'll take that. I want that. I hope you want that. Fall in love with guilt freak. That's God's version. Love that so much that whatever it takes to get to there, we want that. Um, temperance leads to joy because it leads to long-term success. The short-term impulsive behavior is always going to ruin our long-term plans. A bad financial impulsive decision ruins the long-term savings that we're trying to accomplish. A short-term impulsive angry outburst ruins the long-term trust factor in the relationships we're living. But if we practice temperance, long-term, slow-build, faithful success growth, that's there at the end of the road of temperance. Um, kind of with the less guilt, too, there's just less negative consequences in our life. A lot of times we make a decision that has consequences and we live those. We reap the fruit of those for, for years or months or whatever. But what if they just weren't in our picture? What if they weren't part of the equation? Because we had made a different choice through God's strength, for His glory. That's joy. Less consequences is joy. Um, also, Jesus said, whoever sins is mastered by sin. So sin is a, a sticky substance. Sin is a controlling, it's a magnetic, it's like a tractor beam kind of thing. And so we make impulsive decisions, we make poor choices at some point, we put ourselves under the, the magnetic pull of sin, and then it sticks around, it doesn't want to let go. But if there was freedom that God gave in a moment of choice, well, then we're just living without having to pull against the magnet. We're just walking. It's easier, it's lighter. Sin of, the control of sin will be minimized. It will not be fully eliminated. It will be minimized every time God's temperance has its way. Uh, there's a lot of talk of the phrase, uh, evidence-based programs, evidence-based this, evidence-based that. What about evidence-based hope? We have hope that God's going to do good things. What if we can actually look at evidence in our own life and be like, well, I saw him do a good thing there. Actually have evidence. It's not just blind faith. There are moments in our lives where we saw it. And so then we have more hope. Like, it builds hope. That's joyful. Uh, and the last thing is we just get to see God at work. This is back to your comment again, Mom. It's so cool to see something godish happen. And remind us that we're not alone. Remind us that he loves us, that he's working. That's very cool. And so temperance is like many opportunities to see a God thing happen. Where we didn't say the thing, we didn't do the thing, we didn't drink the thing, we didn't make that decision. 
wow, I don't know how I actually got out of that scenario without making a mess of it. Thank you, God. And, and that's God at work. That's beautiful. So joy, you know, there's many, many reasons, but joy is the destination of temperance. Along that road, we find that we love God more. Temperance helps us love God more. Because guess what? Every time we say no to something that's not God, we're showing Him we love Him more. What do you think He thinks about that? For you that are for us that are parents, when our children choose to do something for our sake, think about what that shows us about our relationship. It's so good. You chose what I want you to do. You chose a good thing, and that's God's joy as a father. That's cool. Every point of temperance is an opportunity to be like, God, I love you more than what I want. I love you more than what I want right now. Because what I want right now is not what you want right now, and so I want to want what you want more. Because I love you so then you, you wage war with your desires. And he gives us strength to win those battles. And sometimes we lose. And then we come back and say, okay, Father, I lost that battle. I still love you more. <laughs> so now I have some consequences or I have some guilt. Will you forgive me for those? Because I want to move on. We're going to try again. We're going to do another temperance experiment. Um, the goal, this road, it does help us love others more. Um, when we're a tempered person, we extend them grace. When someone says the like really hurtful thing to us, they deserve a really hurtful thing back. Eye for an eye. That's justice. You give it to me. But we extend grace when someone says something awful that we do not respond in anger. We give them a moment to be like, no, you know what? I'm sorry. Right? But if you respond heat of the moment, now you're in it. Now it's all guns blazing. You extend people grace by not responding to them. Do you ever think that if you experience temperance, you might be loving others by keeping them out of sin? Most people don't drink alone. So you're probably with someone. Like if you're having too much, are you leading them to have too much? Would they have been there drinking at all if it wasn't for you? Would they have had too much if you didn't? Like you're paving a way. And others can walk down that road with you. So what if you're saving others from sin by deciding just for myself? I just don't want that. And then, therefore, the people around you are not being drawn into the poor choice that you could have made. That's pretty cool. Now the ripples of me wanting to love God are actually keeping others out of sin. Which is a far different thing than the judgmental version of, stop that, don't do it, just end kratia, inside, inner strength. Um, and we do love ourselves more. Um, John Mark Comer it says that spiritual disciplines and practices aren't just about saying no to things. <clears throat> Fasting, you know, meditation, silence, solitude. It feels like, don't do this, don't do this. Live an austere life. Be controlled. Uh, the way he looks at it, he says, uh, spiritual disciplines are about saying yes to better things. So I will say no to this thing now because it can let me say yes to a better thing later or next, or immediately, or potentially. Will we choose to say no to something in the moment so we can say yes to something down the road? Um, I think we need to come to love our souls more than we love our bodies. Maybe that's just the final word that I could say on the goals of temperance. Can we come to a point where we love our souls more than we love our bodies? And so we just subordinate our bodies. Not bad. Bodies are beautiful. And all these things have their place. What's going to help my soul grow? Well, this behavior, this activity, this speech, this thought, this habit, this insecurity, this fear, this whatever. Ah, man. It's ruining my soul. It's hurting me. 
how can I elevate things? How can I change physical life so that I can help my soul be free, help my soul grow, help myself feel joy and hope and all these good things? So these are, these are some of the things down that road of temperance that I see. Um, before we split up into our groups and kind of like wrestle with some practical parts of it, are there any other goals? Is there anything else down that road? Maybe as I was talking, it triggered a thought. If we love temperance, if we experiment with it, will it lead to any other good things? There's just a few that came to mind on the end. Where do you think this road would take us if we all practiced it? If every Christian had God's strength and was fully temperate, like, what would that look like? What would it create in the world? Any further thoughts? Yeah. Clearly, it would increase your self-confidence in yourself. That's true. That's true. Repeated failure just destroys self-confidence. A little bit of success. Oh, that's cool. Yep. What else is down this road? Anything else come to mind? I think peace in your decision. Okay. Yeah. In the moment or afterwards? Which moment in peace? Well, I think when you recognize you're showing self-control, it gives you peace. Yeah. 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 Produces peace, causes peace. Anything else that temperance can cause or result in? Good stuff. Sally? Um, it really shows us that, <coughs> excuse me, God's principles work. Right. Yeah. You know, we see the result of that. section there. What could some experiments be? How can we live this out this week? Think of something practical. Challenge each other. What we can do with this. And in just a moment, um, music team, if you'll come forward, we'll, we'll close with song and, and celebrate the community together. Alright, a couple of minutes. See if you can I'm just gonna go get practical. practical. Yes. Yes.